You're listening to Chicago Writes, a podcast of the Chicago Writers Association. On this episode of Chicago Rights, we highlight two of our first chapter contest winners, Cheryl L. Reed and Mary Dean Kaysen. The opening chapter of Map of My Escape by Cheryl L. Reed captured first place in this year's very competitive first chapter contest. Cheryl was awarded a full scholarship to attend the all-genre novel in progress book camp and writing retreat held on June 12th through the 18th, 2022, near West Bend, Wisconsin. Second place went to the first chapter of Mary Dean Kaysen's Banished Daughters of Eve. Third place was awarded to Karen Brenner for her opening chapter of the Trinity River Trilogy. Honorable mentions have been awarded to Fatal and Valuable Cynthia Todd Quam, Confirmation Bias by Bruce Davis, American Mai by Joyce Byrne Zeiss, and Lasting Season by Patricia Ann McNair. Congratulations to all of our winners. Read the top three winning chapters in CWA's Wright City Magazine. But first, a few announcements from our CWA calendar. Submissions to the Chicago Writers Association's 12th Annual Book of the Year Contest are currently open. If you have a book that was published between July 1st, 2021 and June 30th, 2022, you may submit it to the CWA Book of the Year Awards. The contest is open to members and non-members, to authors and publishers as well. We accept submissions in four categories, traditional fiction, indie fiction, traditional nonfiction, and indie nonfiction. Entries will be accepted until August 1st, 2022. Entries postmarked after midnight on August 1st, 2022 will not be accepted. Finalists will be announced in October. Winners will be announced in December. Winners will be honored at a ceremony at the bookseller here in Chicago in January 2023. Download and print the PDF form at chicagorights.org, which will give you all the pertinent details and the mailing address. The preferred method of payment is through PayPal. Click the link to submit payment. Complete the form and send it with your book and a copy of your PayPal receipt to the address on the form The entry fee is $15 for CWA members and $25 for non-members. You may also send a check made payable to Chicago Writers Association with your entry form and your book. Only one entry per author, please. Publishers may submit more than one title, but only one title per author. Books submitted to the contest cannot be returned. For details, visit chicagorights.org. The exclusive online magazine of the Chicago Writers Association, Wright City Magazine, welcomes fiction, nonfiction, and quality poetry. Wright City Magazine is currently open for submissions. Visit the submission guidelines page for details at chicagorights.org. Chicago Writers Association returns to Printer's Row LitFest on September 10th and 11th, 2022. All 60 signing slots are currently sold out. If you would like to be on the waiting list in the event of an author cancellation, send an email to info at chicagorights.org with the subject heading, Add Me to the Printer's Row Waitlist. If spots do open up, we will offer them in the waitlist order in which they are received at the same $50 price via a PayPal invoice. Email info at chicagorights.org with the subject heading Add Me to the Printer's Row Waitlist. Visit chicagorights.org for more details. Each year, the Chicago Writers Association chooses the best first chapter entries from a field of authors. I can tell you, submitting a chapter for a novel novel several years back, the competition is tough. For one lucky winner, that includes a full scholarship to attend the All Genre Novel in Progress Book Camp, 
and writing retreat at the Cedar Valley Center and Spa near West Bend, Wisconsin. This year's award went to Cheryl L. Reed, her opening chapter, Map of My Escape. Cheryl L. Reed is an author and former journalist. Is, it, is that like a Marine? Once a Marine, always a Marine? <laughs> well, I'm still a journalist because I'm still publishing. There you go. There you go. So I, I shouldn't say former journalist. You're a journalist. Mm -hmm. uh, she has shadowed uh, dark and mysterious characters from cops to murder suspects, cloistered nuns to girls doing drugs. Reed's debut novel, Poison Girls, is a thriller about girls in Chicago's political families playing a deadly game involving opioids. Poison Girls won the Chicago Writers Association Book of the Year Award. Congratulations, by the way. Reed's book of nonfiction, Unveiled, The Hidden Lives of Nuns, chronicles her experience living with religious women in convents for four years. Reed is a former editor and reporter with the Chicago Sun-Times and other public publications. She's also an educator, which we just discussed. Uh, she is a two-time recipient of the U.S. State Department's Fulbright Scholar Award to Eastern Europe. She currently lives in the Chesapeake Bay area of Virginia, where she is hard at work on her forthcoming novel, Map of My Escape. Her website is CherylReed.com. Welcome to hey. the CWA podcast. How are you? Good, good. I'm very good. Getting um, ready to go back. So um, getting packed. Do you have an agent? Do I have an agent? I have had many agents. Um, okay. So Map of My Escape is actually my third novel. I'm working mm -hmm. on my fourth book, which is, is uh, nonfiction. Uh -huh. so, um, so for CWA, I entered the first uh, chapter of my novel, Map of My Escape, and then by the time that the which won, but by the time it won, I had already I had sold <laughs> it myself uh, to a small publisher. Uh, so now it's coming out. Uh, so it, I decided I would work on a, another book when I went to book book camp because okay. that one was already submitted. I couldn't change it very much. I already had an editor. That's why I decided to work on another book while I was there. And we're going to talk about the book camp, uh, the book the book camp book. I keep saying boot camp. <laughs> it's um, because the, they don't they don't march you around you're not all in the same uniform um you're you're not chanting pablo neruda lines um <laughs> so it's uh it's, it's not it's not a boot camp necessarily but it's uh it's a book camp it's a it's a focused boot camp for for authors do you have any advice for getting or pitching an agent so while we were there we we did pitch and talk to agents. What was interesting uh -huh. is, um, and, and because I have had several agents, I mean, I think, um, I think just being natural and really believing in your project and uh -huh. having a clear idea for your project. I think in the past, the thing, the, the times I have sort of screwed up on agents is that I let them and their vision kind of dominate what yeah. I was working on, but that never works out. And I will say that the that for every person that you talk to, so there were three agents and a couple of publishers that mm -hmm, were there. Mm -hmm. So an, one publisher and one sort of big name author from New York. Mm -hmm. Every single one of them gave me a different a different venue, a different projection for what I'm working on. And I found that true. I mean, some people said, oh, you need to put more of this in. Some people said, no, you need to take this yeah. out. The same stuff that other people told me to put in oh you need to make this more journalistic no you need to make this less journalistic i, I mean it, it it will make your head spin if and and i know that it's very frustrating for people and it can be very frustrating yeah. so i think you have to go with a pretty clear idea of what you want and then find the agent who also sees your vision how do you parcel sticking to your guns on your on your creative creative vision for for your story and that truly constructive criticism because i i think i think for for a new author mm -hmm. bam you get an agent you're all excited this is you know this 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 is my ticket to 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 the bestseller list or or mm -hmm. uh you know an affirmation that i i've made it as a writer and and that can be that can be blinding to a to a writer how do you how do you parcel those your vision against constructive criticism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, there's constructive, constructive criticism, and then there's an agent's vision. Uh -huh. And um, what was interesting is at, at book camp, and I've heard other people say, 
you know, having a bad agent is actually worse than no agent at all. Mm. And so you really want to make sure that the agent you get, uh, it's like a marriage. I mean, do they communicate yeah. the same way that you do? Do they understand what you want to do? If they keep pushing you in a way you're not comfortable, say like for my situation, uh, I want to write something that's more literary and somebody keeps pushing me to do more journalistic. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm probably not going to go with that agent. Um, but I can tell you that the, when I was for, when I sold my first novel, I got a very big agent. Mm -hmm. This is my second book because the first book was nonfiction. I got a very big agent. She gave me horrible advice. As a result of that horrible advice, I redid the, the, the book. She sent it out to all these big editors. All the editors criticized what she had told me to do. And as a result of that, when I got another agent, she couldn't go to all those people that the first agent had gone to. So that eliminated a lot of people. So that, that's how you can uh, end up in a really terrible situation if you listen to somebody who doesn't have the same vision as you do. I mean, when someone tells you, you know, I, so that's an agent, but in terms of like criticism or construction, criti mm -hmm. constructive criticism, particularly if you're in a workshop, if something speaks to you and you think, oh, that's a great idea, oh, that really fits with my vision, or five out of seven people say the same thing, then you probably know that's, that's, uh, that there, there's something to that and you should really pay attention to it. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't want to belabor this point too much because there's so much more we need to talk about. But this is this is an interesting thread here. So so your your advice to an author who lands a, uh, an agent or a prospective agent is to is is to to build that relationship mm -hmm. and and understand what what their that their vision is is in sync with yours. Yeah, and you know, on the first agent phone call, they're going to say, "Oh, I loved your work. Oh, I love this." And they'll also say, oh, but I really want you to change this. And that's a, probably the one of the first questions you need to say is, what is it that you want me to do? If we work together, what is it that you want me to do with this? Yeah. And if they say, well, I want you to change the this character, that character, or I want you to cut 50 pages. I remember I had a, a not an agent phone call, but an editor phone call. Mm -hmm. And it was a pretty big uh, publishing house. And the uh, editor said, I want you to cut 50 pages. I thought that was really arbitrary. I didn't say no to her, hmm. but I said no to the agent. <laughs> Later, I was like, I'm not cutting 50 pages. Were they, were they, were they running low on paper? I mean, it was ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, it was just like, oh, I, I think she just wanted to see if I would jump through any hoops or something. It, it, it wow. absolutely made no sense. Wow. You know? This this sort of speaks to that a little bit. So I was negotiating to be in an art gallery many, many years ago. My agent and and the gallery owner initially just said, Oh, we love your work. Your your work is just is just wonderful, fantastic. Until I got in there and the negotiation started and and then they were like, Well, who are you? You're you're nothing without us. And that can be really intimidating for somebody who's new to the market until you realize you're the content creator, that they are kind of nothing without you. So, so I'm getting that impression that some agents and editors might play that same, or publishers even might yeah. play that same negotiation game where, mm -hmm. where they build you up to get you in the door because they know that you're, you're, you're sellable. You, they know, yeah. they know that you're, you're a great product or you, or, or you have a great product. But then, then when it comes time to talk numbers, they're, they're not playing fairly. Yeah. And I think you have to, the other thing is I've talked to other, and I have done this. I, I, I talked to other people who've used the same agent Yeah, and, and have said, well, you know, what do they do when it gets, when, you know, the publishing house pushes back? I mean, are yeah, they a fierce yeah. fighter? What do they do? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, there's some really shady agents out there. Uh, I've had a lot of agents. So, I mean, I just feel like getting the best one um, is good. And, mm -hmm. and you should hold out for that. You should hold out for the person who has the vision for your book. Otherwise, you're going to end up publishing a book that you didn't intend to write. Yeah. And, and then how do you follow up on that? Yeah. So um, let's talk about Map of My Escape. Um, mm -hmm. tell us, uh, tell us, give us a synopsis of, uh, of the novel. So 
Map of My Escape is about three people who survived the largest, and I mean by the most devastating school shooting in um, fictional history, which mm-hmm. is, was, is set in uh, Kenwood High School on the south side of Chicago. And it, it shows them 10 years, uh, 13 years later. Mm-hmm. So 13 years later, there are these three people who were involved in this shooting. Two of them were students, one was a cop. Mm-hmm. And what their lives are entwined and how in ways that some of them don't even know. And so one of them becomes an anti-gun activist. One of them becomes a Chicago cop. One of them uh, was a Chicago cop and becomes uh, a the only Republican alderman in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, there is one district that is Republican. Uh, it's on the north, far north side, and a lot of cops live there. So, so the, these three people um, are intertwined. The um, anti anti gun activist actually works a lot with this one police officer, and they go out on a stakeout. He gets shot, she gets blamed, and she becomes a fugitive. So then she runs off to this fictional place in northern Michigan. Um, it's called the Disciple Islands, very similar to the Apostle Islands in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. This one, or this chain of islands, is in uh, northern Michigan. And um, you know, like a lot of those islands up there, it's cut off in the winter, mm-hmm. so there's there's no ferry. You have to be able just to survive on an island with 200 people in the winter, and so that's that's what where it takes place. And it's all about the cops trying to track down uh, this this fugitive and um, her lover trying to track her down, and all these people trying to track each other down. There are people who say they are things that they aren't, and so there's a, there's a lot of tw- it's very twisty in the end. That's as as a writer, um, I'm sure you're, you're like the rest of us where you cycle through innumerable story ideas. Uh, mm-hmm. They're just coming at you from everywhere. I, I, I'm, I, I'm astounded when somebody says I have writer's block. Maybe it's just not being able to, to decide on what story that, that they, they wanna render. Why tell this story or why did you need to tell this story? Well, I think, I mean, I've been working on this story since 2016, mm-hmm. so. Uh, you know, I was hoping that school shootings would be, you know, wouldn't be a thing 2022, yeah. but they yeah. are. And actually yeah. what's happened is they become even a bigger deal. Mm-hmm. And um, I think what's interesting is like, I've tried to read uh, school, you know, obviously there's the, we need to talk about Kevin, which is sort of the epitome of a school shooting, mm-hmm. but that was about the actual school shooting. What I want to see is what happens to these people when they grow up, you know, mm-hmm. what, how does this affect their lives? So this is really what this book is about, but it's, it's more than that. That's, that's the backdrop. You know, it's also about who we think we are, who we tell, you know, the secrets we carry, mm-hmm. um, all of those things. So, you know, school, the, the issue of guns is really, uh, is important to me. I'm not, uh, I'm not a person that thinks all guns should be outlawed. I think people should be able to hunt, but I just don't think they should be able to hunt with an AK-47. Yeah. I'm I'm a, I'm a I'm a former hunter. I really think that if you're if you're hunting, if you're not hunting for food, if you're hunting, you ought to use a bow and arrow and give give the animal a fighting chance to kick your ass back. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but yeah, if if uh, if you can't hit it with one shot and take it down, the other thirty or the other twenty nine really is not going to help you. Um, and it, it's it's just yeah, it's just not. Um... Well, what's funny was. Uh... You know, I always try to keep up because I write about crime and I was, uh-huh. I used to be a crime reporter. Uh-huh. I do try to keep up on my sort of firearms knowledge and mm-hmm. um, I shoot occasionally at ranges. Mm-hmm. I, I don't have a membership anywhere, but mm-hmm. um, when I was in Ukraine um, as a Fulbright scholar and well, 2019 and 2020, I was there again with my husband who was a Fulbright scholar and I was, uh, I was a Fulbright specialist. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went to, I was going to Russian school with West Point, guys from West Point. And so they took me shooting and we shot some, you know, we, we, we shot some Russian guns. We shot some AK-47s. I mean, I understand the firepower and wanting mm-hmm. to do that and mm-hmm. you're all charged up and stuff. But, you know, it's kind of scary that anybody could go and get one of those guns and just walk into a school. And that's, that's the end of that. And we all know that, how that plays out. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I understand it from both ends, but it, it, you know, it's a tragedy. And I think that we, um, I think it's important. My first book, my first novel, 
Poison Girls really dealt mm-hmm. with the opioid epidemic in Chicago. So mm-hmm. I, you know, as a, as a journalist, I try to pull from uh, the headlines, so to speak, you know, what's really going on. Um, because I feel like, well, I feel like novels should be more substantial than just, oh, I made up this character and, you know, you know, their, their, their challenges, you know, they can't, they can't get a Barney's card or they can't shop at some place or they can't do that. I mean, I, I just don't, I'm, I'm much more into something that's much more substantial and really yeah. affects our lives. Sadly, sadly, school shootings have been with us for a very, very long time. Um, but do you do you ever feel that writing to the headlines or writing about social issues that mm. are prominent in the news that will that will fall out of favor or mm. or people will will react unfavorably to to the story? Well, it's usually it's a component of the story, but that's not what the story is about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, like a map of my escape, that's the background. The school okay. shooting is the background. You don't get to it till the fourth chapter. By then, mm-hmm. you're real. You, it's just to explain this character. I kind of I went back and forth on that first chapter for a while. So, I mean, I think I think it's to explain how these people ended up together. The when I first approached that book, yes, I was kind of interested in school shootings, but really when I first approached that book, it was about fugitives. Mm-hmm. And I had covered fugitives. I've always wanted to write a book about fugitives. I'm just fascinated with them. I had covered, you know, we've had several, several famous ones in, in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And um, I had covered a few um, from uh, that ended up in Boston and, and all over the, all over the United States. But I find these fascinating. I find, especially the women, I find the women, how did they mingle in, in society? How did they, because as I say in the book, Female fugitives usually tend to be much more public, as whereas men are, you know, oh, he was a loner and nobody ever really paid attention yeah. to him. But female ones, uh, you know, think of the the woman in uh, Minnesota. She was uh, she was an actress. She was on the PTA. She um, she appeared before the state legislature. I mean, others they're, hiding they're, in plain sight. Hiding in plain sight, mm-hmm. and that's how they do it. Uh, so I was very interested in that um, idea. And um, so a lot of times I'm mixing a lot of different um, situations together, you know, just to keep it interesting. So <laughs> along those lines, and you do, by, by the way, um, along those lines, you place your characters in the shifting moral and ethical landscapes where where paradigms are never actually clear. You know, the, the character is, all, is a little off off balance in their own moral and ethical judgments and decisions. Um, how, how do you construct a character? Well, as a journalist, I've met so many people. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that there's just no way that that hasn't informed my, um, the way I look at things and how I pick characters. And you meet so many characters. So a lot of times I pull from people I've already interviewed. And I uh, construct a character based on that or a composite of people I've interviewed. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I definitely think that informs my, my reporting or my writing. I, I've, done, I've done this a, as a writer where I, I, will, I, have, I have a character in mind, but I'm constructing a, a moral play that I, I need the, the character to get through. And then, and then I, I, I kind of loft the character or lay the character on top of that story. How, how, do, you, how do you construct your characters? Well, I think the characters change. I mean, uh-huh. I, 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 I start thinking about, and I work on these books for a while. So I, I start thinking about, like, I want a strong, it's really important to me to have a strong female lead character. Okay. And I, I, I usually like to have uh, a triad. I think that's a mm-hmm. really interesting mm-hmm. um, situation where you have three people and you never, there's a lot of suspicion and not all three people like each other and, you know, combination of, of those three. And so I think that's a really interesting mix. That and really I, helps. That really helps, by the way, that, that off-centered moral and ethical landscape. Mm-hmm. They're all kind of jockeying for their own, um, for their own prominence or their own their own moral and ethical balance, and they're different. Like for example, yeah. in Map of My Escape, so you have a you have a gun activist who had her brother killed, right? So she is absolutely against guns in all forms. And mm-hmm. then you have a detective, a Chicago detective, who happens to be an African American, 
who feels that, um, you know, the Chicago police are corrupt and he wants to change it from the inside. And so that that one incident caused him, you know, that's what his motivation is. And then you have the, the, the former Chicago cop who becomes a, a, a politician, you know, his ambition is to change the world in essence. And he feels that everybody should have access to guns and not just the, you know, mm -hmm. gangsters. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, everybody's kind of in a different moral landscape, but their lives intertwine and, and, and none of them can be so absolutely uh headstrong that they can't make room for the other person otherwise you don't have a story mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um so i think i am I'm, I'm always trying to inhabit the other head the heads of these other people i mean mm -hmm. you, you meet them and and you're able to construct that that those personalities from the people you've met do you, do you begin with those relationships and then morph that onto onto the story that you want to tell and then and then adjust the characters as uh uh, as you need uh, to fit the story, or or how how does how does that happen? I pretty much start with the character, and okay. I know what the character is going to do, and okay. I know the character is going to be in this certain situation. I don't know all the details of the character, and the characters tend to change. Mm -hmm. uh, with this particular map for my escape, I actually wrote this is a a, a two um, a narrative told from two people. The yep. perspective every other chapter is or just about is the other person. Mm -hmm. Well, I actually had had the third, the third person having a voice, and they were also, and and the reaction I got from my from my beta readers were was, I'm not sure that works. And so actually, it's it's kind of like the decision I'm going to be I'm going to tell it omniscient. I'm going to tell it um, third person close, third person distant. Mm -hmm. I'm only going to be in the heads of these two people. You know, I've read, I, you know, it's interesting when we were at book camp, everybody wanted to be omniscient. I'm like, mm -hmm. that just isn't very interesting. I mean, knowing what's in everyone's head, you think, you know, I think as a beginning writer, you think, oh, that's going to be easier. It's not easier. And it's actually not very interesting. But what I think is interesting is only knowing things from a certain viewpoint. And then your reader is figuring out things that the character doesn't know. Mm -hmm. um, I find that really fun to play with. Outline or not outline? In other never words, outline. do you never outline? No, I know what's going to happen in the end. I know what the ending is. I know mm -hmm. what the beginning is. And from there, it's it, to me, that's the whole point of writing is it's a journey to find out, you yeah. know, to get to the ending. Yeah. If I outlined, I would grow so bored. Do, do your characters always do what you want them to do? No, no. <laughs> Where does that, and, and I've asked this of so many different artists, musicians and writers and painters and sculptors, that, that there's, something, there, there's something outside of us May, mm -hmm. maybe it's maybe it's subconscious in which if we craft a character well enough that that character gains their own intention kind of, I, I guess i guess like the internet and ai i want him to go in the door on the left they say nope i'm going through the door on the right or i'm going down the hall or i'm not mm -hmm. going in i'm not going anywhere near any of so but but and and then you you have to you have to kind of do your best to constrain that character within mm -hmm. within the scope of the story but i think i think that adds to a to a realism your thoughts on that well i think when you start writing i think there's a lot that's sub, you know sub, in your subconscious yeah but yeah. i also think your subconscious is saying oh we know this character and that character wouldn't do that i mean uh -huh frontal lobe you know writer you don't you have it wrong you know the subconscious really knows this and this this character would have more agency or this character wouldn't do that it's it's yeah, almost like when yeah. you're watching tv or a movie and they you you see these characters do things and you're like so angry because you're like that character would never do that you also have to start looking at how have you set up this character and if you set up this character in such a way that this would be a major you know, shift in their personality to do this thing, I think you have to really question whether or not that's really, I mean, sometimes why, why are you doing that? And, and mostly it's because of plot. You, you, you have something in your plot that your character has to do. And so it would be much easier if they went to the door on the left, when in reality, their personality is such that they would never do that. 
So I think when that happens, I think you have to look at your plot. You have to look at the reasons why you need to do that. Mm-hmm. And you have to follow what your, what your subconscious is telling you about this character and their agency. Uh, I, I would be remiss if I didn't bring this into the, into the mix, um, just as a, um, next to the last question I have for you. Uh, you spent time in Central Asia, especially in the former Soviet republics, uh, and you stood behind your students at Northern Michigan University. You've talked about uh, the islands in, in, uh, in Michigan, nor- uh, in the UP Michigan. I'm very, very familiar with those islands and the <laughs> UP Michigan. And, and, and that northern uh, that northern Michigan University uh, um, issue uh, was uh, you stood behind your students against the administration uh, over freedom of the press, of their press. Mm-hmm. Um, how have those experiences and perspectives informed you as as a writer, especially as a as a as a fiction writer? Wow, as a fiction writer. Well, I think first I'll say that, you know, when I was at Northern Michigan, we went to federal court uh-huh. to challenge the, the what was happening, the um, what was happening at Northern Michigan University, where the uh, officials were, were um, defunding the student newspaper, they were rejecting the freedom of information requests, documents, all things that you, you needed to be doing. Those were stands that any journalist worth their weight would have taken. And it was not a difficult, it was not an easy stand for sure. But right after that, I went to, I had a a Fulbright scholarship to go to Ukraine. And I was in Ukraine for a year from 2016 to 17, teaching investigative reporting Mm -hmm. to the first generation of uh, students, reporters who had never grown up under the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. Those are the same journalists who are now covering the war. My, for the last five years, I have had um, a research project um, and I write about it in, in, in several publications, including the Washington Post and other publications. But it's about journalists who in post-Soviet states who are being repressed, who are being jailed and uh, shot and uh, killed, you know, who've been told to delete things, who've uh, had their families threatened. All these things. So um, that's a, a, so. I think that's a really important part of my work as a journalist. I think it's I, fundamental to to every writer. It is not, but not every writer is going to spend five years of their life interviewing these people. That's why we have Cheryl O'Reed. <laughs> Well, I don't know. I mean, it's, you know, I become obsessed with with things. I became obsessed with my first story, which was about nuns. And I I'm not Catholic. And I traveled mm-hmm. actually all around the United States and the world interviewing all these nuns because uh. I was obsessed. And prior to that, I was doing uh, secretly married priests. And, you know, I just have all these subsets of people that I just I like to inhabit their world for a while and tell their stories. Here, Cheryl L. Reed is an author of journalist. She is the author of the award-winning Poison Girls and Unveiled the Hidden Lives of Nuns. Reed's forthcoming novel is Map of My Escape, which she just spoke about just now. Uh, her website is CherylReed.com. We'll link to uh, the website and to Amazon in the uh, in the notes below. Thank you so much. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. A quick announcement from our CWA calendar. The Chicago Writers Association 7th Annual First Chapter Contest will be open for entries beginning in August. The contest is open to members only. Look for the official announcement at our website, social media, and newsletter. Judging is based on elements that should be found in a first chapter, including a good opening hook, strong characterizations, compelling voice, conflict dialogue, and no grammatical or mechanical errors. Judges will also be looking at your presentation, if a submission followed the rules, submitted in the correct format, and if the manuscript is at the appropriate length. Generally, judges are looking for an entry with a fresh idea, presented with clarity, structure, and elements of exceptional writing. Visit chicagorights.org for more information. Now is the time to join Chicago Writers Association. It's open to writers and authors anywhere in the world. Unlock a wealth of writer and author resources, programs, and benefits for just $25 per year by visiting 
chicagorights.org or click on the link in the notes below. Chicago Writers Association membership, by the way, makes a great gift. Hi, Mary Dean. Hi, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. Uh, and and the, the video is just for, for our back and forth. Right. I sure. don't use the video, so I just wanted, in case, case a dog walks in the room or a bird flies through the house, I, I didn't want anybody to be... And uh, my husband walks by in his underwear. Well, you know, that that will definitely put on, on YouTube. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> Here, Mary Dean is a frequent contributor to live lit storytelling venues in Chicago. Her short story, What Solomon Saw, was a finalist in, in WBEZ's Stories on Stage, taken from her novel of short stories, What Solomon Saw, and other stories. In addition to a bachelor's degree in art history and a master's degree in healthcare administration, Mary Dean is a graduate of the University of Chicago's Writer's Studio, where her story, The Army Jacket, won the 2008 prize for fiction. She is also a medical writer specializing in communications to medical professionals. She is currently pitching the novel to agents and publishers. By the way, how the judges managed to choose between the the impressive stories that you and Cheryl Reed, who we, we, we were just talking with, I have no idea how they did it. Uh, they're, they're both they're both astounding stories. Very very different. Banished Daughters of Eve is Mary Dean Kaysen's current current piece, uh, and that's in the that was uh, the the runner up to the Chicago Writers Association first chapter contest. Why that story and why now? Oh wow! You know it's uh, it's had I known uh, how uh, timely this would be when I started noodling with this idea about uh -huh. 10 years ago. Uh -huh. uh, the story is, in many ways, it's a story about grief. Uh -huh. um, in the very first sentence, you know that a mother has died uh -huh. in a, a hotel room, a mother of five. And it's a big Catholic family living in the heart of the Bible Belt in North uh -huh. Carolina in the 1960s. And um, I, this story is something that is, um, in some ways I was witness to. I grew up in the Carolinas, uh, a Catholic in the Bible Belt. Mm -hmm. And um, I really watched my mother uh, navigate this, of course at the time growing up, it's just where you grew up, it's just mm -hmm. how you grew up. But I, I was aware very much that we were part of the other. Yeah. I mean, we weren't black people living in the South, but we were Catholics and Jews and Greeks that were um, kind of new to this area. Uh, after World War II, there was a huge influx into the Carolinas because of air conditioning. Mm -hmm. Once, um, as my husband, who grew up in Chicago, said, once we gave you guys air conditioning, <laughs> <laughs> you were able to attract all kinds of people. And literally, entire um, communities and industries in New England, for example, the textile industry, literally packed up and moved into the Piedmont of the Carolinas for labor, cheap labor. Mm -hmm. And also, the weather was great. Um, there were all kinds of things that attracted people to this area. But great numbers of these people were Catholic coming into communities, mm -hmm. some of which had never even seen a nun or a priest. So, you know, when I when I moved away from there, lived in Chicago for a while, I kind of came to appreciate how, in a way, unique that was. Mm -hmm. And my experience of watching my Catholic parents, who had friends who were Protestants, but that. I realized they kind of viewed themselves in some ways as like expats, and um, they all get they all hung out together. And um, this was also at the uh, during the civil rights movement, and a lot of the 
more, let's say, liberal Catholic people were much more sympathetic to mm -hmm. racial issues at the time. Not all, but many were. And the other thing that was happening at this time was Vatican II, this enormous change in the Catholic Church that people like my mother and father really embraced because this was the modernization of the church. And the big thing that they were seeking was birth control. Mm -hmm. And um, at least to keeping pace. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Really, and um, you know, my my mother would often say about her Protestant friends, "I think they think we're stupid. I think they think we're really crazy that we believe that we would die and go to hell if we used a condom or if mm -hmm. we got on the pill." And so, I my character is not my unlike my my mother did not die, but I remember my mother coming home after going to confession and sobbing and crying because the old Irish priest told her that if she went on the pill, that she would be damned, that she would go to hell, that she would. And she was a good Catholic. She really was. So she, this time was very, very painful. Hmm. So when you say why now, I, I, I started this novel, like I said, started noodling around with it about 10 years ago. Uh -huh. and, put it away. Then five years ago, I looked at it. And then over the last few years, I pulled it out and I said, I, I have to finish this. This is the times we are living in and nothing could be more, you know, to me. I have to say as, as a writer, being, being astute to, to what's going on both within you and, and around you, that this was, that this topic was there many years ago. Oh, yeah. It's just it's just become monolithic <laughs> right right now. Yes. I mean, I never thought that I would. Yeah, I feel a sense of urgency about it. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah. Indeed. I mean, Indeed. You know, literally, you know, as we speak, um, this uh, a decision could come down from the court that could, you know, change the lives of, of millions of women. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you know, I was I was I was just going to say, um, give us a, a brief synopsis and then and then I'd like to. I'd like to focus on something in uh, in that first chapter that that I think gets us off and running in the story, hooks okay. us hooks us right away. But okay. but give us a, a brief synopsis of uh, of your of the story. In 1968, Laura Locke, a 40 year old mother of five, is found dead in a North Carolina hotel room with sleeping pills, vodka, and a six month fetus on board. And the only one who really doesn't buy that it's a suicide is her 16-year-old daughter, Nell. When Nell is 30, she, Nell moves away, goes away to college, and doesn't come back, comes back when she's 30, newly married and pregnant herself. She marries a guy who actually starts a, um, his residency, he's a doctor, at the same hospital where she was born. She moves back to North Carolina, and, you know, before she's unpacked her maternity dresses, uh, she starts digging. She gets her husband, who knows how to read autopsies, to start helping her out. And she finds out about this little-known thing called the Papal Birth Control Commission, which was part of Vatican II, mm -hmm. and how her mother took on the local priest. To find out the truth, she's going to have to depend on her mother's retired obstetrician, the family's African-American housekeeper, her siblings, detectives, and several unexpected parties to serve up the truth. But the trouble is almost all of them want to go to their graves with what they know. The first chapter of uh, Banished Daughters of Eve, you set the stage for, for what's coming with, with a, a, a sublime economy of, of words. Mm -hmm. um, there are many ways that an author can can set up a story they can they can set it up slowly and 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 build to something so so you're you're kind of you're kind of building the tension you don't necessarily know at the end of the first chapter but but you know something something is coming something is is going to happen stephen king does do, does that wonderfully by the way or you you can you can do it with 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 an exchange or or, or dialogue you do it with a with a remark by a priest. Tell me if I if I'm wrong in getting in getting this pivot. But you do it with a remark by the priest, which your character's father reacts 
really badly too. <laughs> yes, <laughs> he does. He doesn't like that. I, I thought I thought that was that was wonderful and powerful and succinct. It it, it doesn't drop like an anchor, but but it drops, mm. and you feel it. You feel you feel that tension. You feel that angst. You feel that that anger. Talk about the decision and and how you structured the the first chapter. Wow. Well, like uh, like probably most of us, uh, it was rewritten. You know, thirty or forty times. This priest is very, uh, Monsignor Quinn, this was a, one thing I found out during my research that there were so many Catholics coming into the South, that there, were there was literally a seminary in Ireland that was educating priests to come into the American South because the growth was so tremendous during the 50s. Um, so he's an Irishman, he's a Monsignor, Monsignor Tobias Quinn. And uh, he is not supposed to know that this woman was pregnant when she died. Nobody else knows. Um, and he um, is, you know, at the grave. Uh, and there's like 100 or so people gathered around in this sweltering hot September day. And he says, we, you know, not only bury this mother, but also, you know, her unborn child who has been denied the light of God's loving face. I love the brogue, by the way. Oh, well, yeah, I hear, I, I hear that. I knew this guy. I knew guys like him. Uh -huh. But anyway, he, um, this is so shocking, terribly shocking to the people who don't know this beloved woman who has just died and uh, that she was pregnant again. They know that she's likely committed suicide, and, but her family the ones who do know, who were really hoping to keep this a secret are just, and her husband especially, he, he didn't even know she was pregnant, you know? So the, this, is, um, this is such a kick in the gut and it does, it did, starts, yeah. Did that exchange uh, or did that remark, was, was that original to the story or was that oh, yeah. one of those, it was? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I, I can't tell you how it, you know, sometimes I, I don't know that I'm unique in this at all, but I think a lot of times um, that my, my gut writes and my fingers just do this. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, you go back and you clean stuff up. But mm -hmm. no, I really, um, I wanted him to be, you know, in many ways, the, you know, the antagonist here. He doesn't, he doesn't figure powerfully in the whole story. He comes mm -hmm. and goes. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is that I have to keep, and I, I think we all have to keep remembering when we're writing about people that we don't like, or that we, you know, who we see as whether they're the bad guy, that we have to have a nod of empathy yeah. for these people. We may, we have to pull it back, but there's a lot of nuns and priests in this story, or there's a couple, and, and um, you know, they really believed that they were doing the right thing. They really, really believed in what they were doing. Mm -hmm. It's, while this was devastating for this family, the death was devastating. The a woman, she had a six-month-old at home. This was, I guess I saw that as, as just picking, ripping off a scab in some way. And then I wanted to start it with that. We spoke with uh, with Cheryl Reed a little bit ago. The common thread I found both of your stories is that you both placed your characters in this shifting moral and ethical landscape, where where those paradigms are are never actually clear, and the character is always a little bit off balance in their own moral and ethical judgments <laughs> and, and decisions. Talk about how you construct characters. Cheryl uh, Cheryl spoke about creating uh creating a triangle of, of characters and that that she renders the characters uh sort of basically i hope, hope i'm characterizing what she said correctly uh and then laying that over over the story and adjusting both of them uh to fit um mm -hmm. I, i'm wondering how how you how you build or create your characters mm -hmm. that's interesting i probably very differently <sighs> I, and organically, by the way, is is also an acceptable answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess mine is organically. Uh -huh. I knew I knew a family when I was a kid growing up. That the the mother in this story is a portrait painter, uh -huh. 
and that's you know you you learn that very early on and this the protagonist the, the woman the girl nelly who who um goes on this quest she is the only one of her mother's children who also becomes a painter not a portrait mm -hmm. painter but a painter i actually knew a family growing up and uh, i didn't know them well but i really admired them and there was a the, the mother was not a portrait but she was a painter mm -hmm. and she her oldest daughter, she and her oldest daughter looked so much alike. I was always intrigued with them. She, the mother was one of the most beautiful women I'd ever seen. And her daughter also was quite beautiful. And they had, she had like five kids. And the kid that was in my class was a redheaded, you know, normal looking kid. I spent time at their house. I loved their home. I loved the feeling of it. And when I started writing this story, I, you know what, I, I can't say rhyme or reason, but I kept seeing Mrs. Rogers, her name is Mrs. <laughs> Rogers, and her daughter Donna. I just kept seeing them and I thought, oh, you know what, that's, I can see this, I can see them as this story. Mm -hmm. I also wanted a Chicago connection in this. And she, they were, her mother was, was very Swedish with the super, super blonde, blonde hair. And so I had her coming, she comes from Chicago in uh, Andersonville. <laughs> so, you know, there were things. So when I, but you know, that probably didn't come in for, I don't know. I didn't make those connections until later. And then of course I have my own mother's story, my mm -hmm. own these things bleed in, you know, yeah. it's kind of yeah. intuitive. It is intuitive. And, but yet I, I almost want to say that I think that, that our brains are smarter than that. <laughs> yeah. You know what? And we had, we had a great conversation with, uh, with Cheryl about where characters come from and when do they achieve their own autonomy? In other words, oh. in other words, when, when you want them to go out the door, they say, no, I'm staying in you know, they're, uh, I'm going upstairs, I'm doing, they're, they're doing something other than, than maybe you actually intend them to do. And you have to, you have to adjust the story in order to, to accommodate that, or you need to, you need to, to constrain them. I, I, the, the best description I've used is like a jazz player is given a line of melody and he's all over the map, but he stays he stays basically true to that melody. Yeah, no, I, that's great. That really is good. I I have written quite a few things that ended up, you know, getting yanked or killing babies because when I, I finally in the final analysis said, you know, and I don't think Nellie would do this. Maybe that's another story, <laughs> you know, and sometimes you have to, but there's other things too where sometimes I, I meditate not as religiously as I once mm -hmm. did. I do think that these storylines and, and, and little epiphanies will come to me when I get myself really quiet. And there is a, you know, it, it just kind of wants to come up and just peck and say, this is what needs to happen here. I was really at a loss about this priest. You know, mm -hmm. I wanted this priest to have, he, he, he's important, but... He didn't kill this woman. He didn't, you know, and, and I, I had a point where I, I wanted, I needed to let him go. And I wrote something in and then I, that doesn't feel right. And then I was talking to a friend and we were talking about, you know, uh, she had gone to my school, uh, we'd grown up together. And she said, I said, whatever happened to father so-and-so? And she said, oh, you know, they always got transferred. And they did. Yeah. They just they just moved them along. The uh -huh. ones that were really good and really made a difference and built the school or whatever, they needed them someplace else. Maybe I just have to realize that there are certain um, facts, realities, mm -hmm. especially of that time in the in the sixties when um, you know they didn't stay at the same parish for twenty years. They mm -hmm. were there. Ten, and then they moved them on. So, it's not like I was looking for a way to get rid of him. I realized his job here was done. <laughs> do you outline, or do you not outline, or do you outline minimally, or as as you go along, maybe through a chapter or through a couple of scenes? How how does that work for you? How does it? I'm not. I, I, 
am not a good outliner. Mm -hmm. I don't. I don't. I guess it just doesn't work that way for me. I suppose in my work I do. I'm a medical writer. I, I outline a lot for them. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't want to say this is just re real free form and I sit there and it just flows out. It doesn't. Uh, but I always have a strong sense of where it starts. And I may, you know, the ending of something might not make itself clear to me for some time. Okay. But no. So then. Well, Cather. But <laughs> <laughs> so the, then how, how do you how do you structure a story or how do you know that a, that a story is structured correctly or strongly or is that even a consideration you're you're writing you're, you're writing a story based on the structure of that individual story it's very character driven mm -hmm. it's very um time and place driven there I, I to know when it's done writing a short story is different i've written uh i've done a lot of uh short stories and i mm -hmm. I, I read something once about how, I think it was uh, Keats, or it could have been Yates, I always, you know, switch a letter and you've got, <laughs> but anyway, one of them said that they was asked, when do you know a poem is done? When do you know it's finished? And he said, every once in a while you get a feeling, like the feeling when you close a box mm -hmm. and the lid shut, that it's done. And I went, oh my God, I kind of know that feeling. I've had that. And it's obviously very different when you write a novel, but I know you're you want to about structure. Structure for me is the hardest thing in the world. It really mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. I, I for for Banished Daughters of Eve, I had a tremendous number of scenes. And what I do is is I have all these scenes and then literally I have post-it notes. And I just literally go almost like almost storyboarding. Yeah, it is. An, it is. It yeah. is storyboarding yeah. because I think I may. I maybe. Maybe I should tell this first. Maybe I should. This may get changed again because mm -hmm. I, you know, if I, I sell this book, if, chapter three might end up in chapter eighteen. I don't know. So, <laughs> which brings us to this. I, I, I alluded to this in the uh, in the introduction that you're looking for an agent. Have you found an agent yet? I just started. I pitched four agents at the, just last weekend was the Chicago Writers Workshop. Mm -hmm. and, um, mm -hmm. So I'm actually, I'm just starting. What has been very helpful to me, and I'll give her a shout out. Um, I've been working with a writing coach and I shouldn't say she's a writing coach. She's, uh, she's, she does not help me write. She uh -huh. is trying to help me get this thing out there. Her name is Sharon Woodhouse. She's amazing. I actually discovered her through the Chicago Writers Association. She has been really good with having me set deadlines. And an area that I'm very weak is I do not have a social media presence. I need. Mm -hmm. I, I did. I had a Facebook account, and um, I just shut it down. I just couldn't take it anymore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was it, it can be it can be a, uh, an incredible distraction, especially yeah. for a writer where you need to write, not post. Yeah. yeah. And so I need to recreate. I need to go back and, and mm -hmm. just set up an author's page. And I, mm -hmm. I need to. So Sharon has been very helpful with that. And the uh, and so the process begins um, of um, looking for an agent. Any uh, any lessons learned in in that process? Yes, I my pitch letter, uh, in, in my pitch um, uh -huh. was something I worked on really really uh, hard. It was I think it was harder to do the pitch than write the book, <laughs> and I'm sure I'm not the first person to say that. Um, but the most of the the agent pitches I did through the conference were done on Zoom, just mm -hmm. like this. So, and they went very well, fingers crossed. Last question here, The Banished Daughters of, of Eve and uh, What Solomon Saw and Other Stories seems to be, at least in my opinion, more about change than loss, even though, even though you, 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 you speak about both throughout. Yeah, that's true. So, and we always seem to be thrust into, into that change along with your characters almost, almost abruptly as, as though 
as though it, it's a splash of cold water and you and you want to take us quickly out of out of the safety and security of our own own assumptions and immerse us in your characters and in your story and in their their struggle yeah yeah you do you know i i don't i it when you say that the stories are about change and uh, more than loss i don't think you go through any change without loss I was reminded the other day that um, my one of my my grand my my daughter-in-law was lamenting a while back about putting away the crib, and I was saying, you know, we get so excited when they start to walk, and then we cry when you put away the crib, and it is that is the way of life. I mean, that is um, if you when once you've raised a child, you you get that, and loss is they're both loaded change is they're both loaded and they're loaded with a tremendous amount of joy and you know and often sorrow but um to take a character and move your character through these um episodes and uh and especially if you're dealing with a historical thing mm -hmm. where, you, mm -hmm. where you at least get to look back there and say gosh 1968 oh wow <laughs> you know, what a time and and boy that's a rich time um and setting is also very 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 important indeed 1968 in uh ontario was one thing 1968 in winston-salem north carolina was a whole different animal and so kind of it's kind of coming back to how do you know when something's finished when there is, I think our bodies know in a way, I think. Yeah, and, and I, I'd agree with that. I, I, I'm working on a book on the history of light for the artist. And, and, and one of the narratives in that has to do with our storytelling ancestry and culture, that we are a storytelling species. Yeah. Um, we respond to that everywhere in advertising, in fiction, in, uh, in the water cooler work. Everywhere, there's there's an innate aspect of storytelling that and structure that we all we all intuitively understand, and and that has to do with resolution and uh, and and finishing a story in a satisfying way. And we all know when a story hasn't hasn't resolved itself properly if it's not satisfying. Or it's not, uh, yeah. there's, there's no, no decent re resolution. Every time we meet someone who becomes a significant person in our lives, that happens through storytelling. Mm -hmm. you, you, the first date you had with the love of your life, you told stories. <laughs> we all, that's how we come to know each other is yeah. by telling stories. And we all, I agree with you so much that it is a, it's a need Mm -hmm. I feel now I'm so, I miss my parents, not, uh, I mean, they, they were complicated, imperfect people, but I'd love to hear some stories of my father who didn't tell, he told very few. And I have this, uh, would, oh boy, I would love to be able to ask him about this, ask him about that. We, when we don't hear stories and we don't know a person's story, we, we don't know them. Uh, Mary Bean's novel of short stories, What Solomon Saw and Other Stories, is available at Amazon. Her story, The Army Jacket, won the 2008 prize for fiction at the University of Chicago Writers Studio. She is also a medical writer. Uh, we'll link to both Mary Dean Kaysen and Cheryl L. Reed, both amazing, amazing writers in the notes below. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You were wonderful. Good luck with the book. Thank you. Thank powerful, you. powerful work. Oh, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. Thanks a lot, a lot, Bill. You've been listening to Chicago Writes, a podcast of the Chicago Writers Association. I'm your host, W.C. Turk. Links to our featured guests are in the notes below, as well as links to the Chicago Writers Association. Until next time. Support this podcast by simply clicking the subscribe button to receive notification about all of our upcoming episodes, upcoming events, and programs from the Chicago Writers Association, chicagorights.org.
Our theme song, Midnight Ride, is courtesy of Dino Olovchich. Find Dino's music on YouTube and on Spotify. <laughs>